The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Pray with me before we hear the scriptures again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an evening to worship and an evening to hear again the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he loved us to death. And we pray that as we further contemplate this truth and celebrate it by the sign and seal of the sacrament of the supper, that you would fill again our hearts with faithful trust that looks away from ourselves and rests in your son Jesus. So Lord, as we think of his resting, bless now the hearing of your word to your people and the strengthening of our conviction together as the people of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read again just the last verse from Luke 23. Luke 23, 56 says, Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments, and this to focus on. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. I want to think just briefly with you about this reality. I, I thought that it would be a wonderful opportunity to do something of a sweeping biblical survey of the concept of this Sabbath resting as it's portrayed in the Old and New Testaments and how significant it is for the life of the child of God, but there's not enough time to do that. Suffice it to say that when we read this text, of course, it's Friday at this point, the disciples are already scattered. It's interesting to speculate exactly what was on their minds at that time, but we know from the text that the women were working with Joseph of Arimathea to secure a tomb for the Lord Jesus to lay in, and then his, bodily, his body is hastily prepared according to Jewish customs, which is why the women go back to the tomb on Sunday morning to complete the ritual that they were not able to complete on Friday. The women go to the tomb on Sunday, fully expecting to find Jesus there, of course. But the disciples are observing, the physician Luke is telling us there in verse 56, that the disciples are gone, and they are resting according to the commandment. That is, they are observing what is at this time the Jewish Sabbath. The Sabbath, which was commanded by God as a mandate of creation, that by uh, resting, we remember God's work of creation and His rest, at the end of the creation week as a a typological reality for the people of God that we work and rest as a testimony that we ourselves are not God. And we worship on the Sabbath. And then, of course, in the New Testament, the Sabbath rest is typologically fulfilled in Jesus Christ who rested and rose on the first day of the week. And so we call Sunday then the Lord's Day, don't we? The Christian Sabbath. The Sabbath is not abolished by the resurrection of Jesus. It's fulfilled. But there's a lot of resting happening here. Luke tells us again, on the Sabbath day, they rested. Collectively, they. That is, he's saying that all the people that you've been hearing about throughout this narrative that have been involved, they were all resting. And that includes many different people. But I want to provide some thoughts for us some reflections around the resting of the Lord Jesus. 
the rest of the Lord Jesus. That's a topic that deserves a lot broader attention and interest, and in many ways, um, especially if you were with us last fall, we studied that in some great detail as we went through the Apostles' Creed together. But let me frame it with this question, as it's very oftentimes asked, and I would venture to guess some of you have wondered this question yourself. Just where is Jesus between Friday and Sunday? Where is Jesus? The early church tradition referred to the time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday as Holy Saturday. And it's inspired many questions like this one again. Just where is he on Holy Saturday? Where is Jesus on Saturday? Well, to that we should say, there is a complicated answer with a profound significance, and there is a very simple answer with a profound significance as well. On the complicated end of this, we should say that because uh, we understand the Bible teaches that as human beings, we are dichotomists, that is, we have a body and a soul. You are made up dichotomously of body and soul. Jesus, in his incarnation, takes upon himself a real, true human body, and the Shorter Catechism says, a reasonable human soul. So Jesus himself has, just like you, body and soul. So, the complicated question, and the longer answer to the question, where is Jesus' human soul that he possesses by way of his incarnation, where is Jesus' human soul in the intervening time on Holy Saturday? When you're asking that question, you're asking what the creed means when it says we confess that he descended into hell. But what that means, of course, takes a longer explanation, and it's not my intent to rehearse the history of the church's answering that question. Again, we did that in great lengths last fall. But to suffice it to say that Jesus tells us exactly where his human soul is. If you look back in Luke 23, back to Luke 23 and verse 43, Jesus tells the dying thief next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus tells us exactly where his soul is. Now, of course, I acknowledge that there are some with different understandings of what that paradise represents, but we would call it heaven. Jesus' human soul in the intervening time is in heaven. We do not take his descent into hell to be a literal descent into the abode of the dead in that sense, but rather an emphatic declaration that when Jesus died, he was really dead. Again, the longer answer is much more complicated. It takes more time to unpack and requires a clearing away of a lot of really wild ideas that people bring into this notion of where is Jesus' soul in Holy Saturday. But actually, the fascinations of where Jesus' human soul are are not really what I want to focus on, as interesting as that is. I just want to simply ask you, where is Jesus' human body? And you might say, what a simple question and answer that is. Where is Jesus' body? Jesus is entombed in the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Luke 23.50 tells us that fact. And in fact, the entire truth of the resurrection is that the reason why the tomb is empty on Sunday was because it was actually occupied on Friday and Saturday. And for all the crazy ways that people try to deny the resurrection, one of the more infrequent ones is that people sometimes suggest that Jesus didn't really die 
that he wasn't really buried, which suggests that the Roman soldiers, who were themselves professional executioners, didn't do the one job that they were supposed to do, which was to make sure this one man who has stirred up all of Jerusalem, Rome and Jews alike, wasn't actually dead. Now, help you if you believe that. Of course he's dead. And of course he's buried. That's where his body is, in the tomb. So we sing, don't we? Lo, in the grave he lay. And I want to ask you, why does that matter? Why does it matter that your Savior takes upon himself the sepulcher, the tomb, the grave? Several things. One, emphatically again, it means that Jesus is truly dead in this sense. Jesus is at this moment a dead Savior, and He must be, because Paul tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And though He was the spotless Lamb of God, death has power over Him as He bears the sins of His people, that He assumes the curse, that He drinks the cup of wrath and satisfies divine justice as the sin-bearing substitute, and so He must die. His burial is part of the cost of sin, namely death itself. And so we speak of Jesus' death as the lowest form of his estate of humiliation. And that might not be language that's oftentimes employed, but it's the language of our creeds and confessions. That we speak of Jesus existing in two estates. The estate of his humiliation and the estate of his exaltation. That we think about the mediatorial work of Jesus existing in these two estates of humiliation and exaltation. With regard to His estate of humiliation, it consists of His taking on human flesh, being made man, being made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life in a fallen world, and the curse of death on the cross, and then being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. You know, oftentimes we think that the cross itself is the bottom of Jesus' humiliation when it's the grave that He's taken down off the cross and placed into the grave as His estate of humiliation sinks lower. That the Christ who is Himself from all eternity, the Creator of all things, is carried down His lifeless body and placed in a tomb to say, there is no lower humiliation for the Lord Jesus than to be placed in the tomb. That's how far down Jesus has gone. So it means He's truly dead. It means that it is the lowest form of His humiliation. And then by way of beautiful application for us, you have a Savior who's been in the grave. Just like you will be. And Jesus is said to sanctify the graves of the saints. You know, that's why we say at the graveside, this is not a lonely place. Why? Because your Savior has already been here. And He has emptied this grave of its power over this believer. Sanctified the resting beds of the saints. 
It means that he has made the grave holy so that even in our burials, the physical burials of our bodies, we still remain united to Christ, which means then that you as a Christian believer are never separated from Jesus Christ in life or in death, in soul or in body. That the bodies of believers maintain union with Christ in the grave such that they are never alone, even in death. That is a staggering thought. It means then also that the grave, the place of our rest, becomes for the Christian believer a holy place and therefore a bed of slumber. Because Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.14 that those who die in Christ, they fall asleep. Death for the Christian believer is called sleep because you wake up from sleep. Right? Because Jesus Christ goes into the tomb and is raised, He dies and rises, so too does the Christian believer die and rise in union with Christ. We sleep and we wake in resurrection life. And Jesus is resting here Friday, Saturday, till Sunday morning. Says all these things for us as those who trust in Jesus Christ. That as the sun goes down on Friday and Jesus is entombed and the stone is rolled in its place, there is this holy silence that is observed. And we know, of course, that we anticipate the shouts of the joys of Easter morning, but you know what? Sometimes it's just good to linger in the silence of Holy Saturday to say, Jesus rests. My Savior has truly died for me, truly been buried for me to redeem both my death and dying and burial and one day of course resurrection so what should you believe as a christian about this truth of jesus is resting now we're quick to say and it's good and right to say that jesus died for us yes and amen and what what better news is there jesus died for you but jesus also came under the power of death for you jesus was buried for you Jesus rested in the tomb for you as your Savior. And I should just say then as a kind of word of personal testimony, as a word of concluding application, uh, there is in my Bible a blank space between the intertestamental pages, right? You go from Malachi to Matthew and it's usually blank. And in, in my Bible, I, I print out and paste the liturgy that I use for graveside services in the intertestamental period uh, of the Bible. So that as I move from Malachi to Matthew, there is the words that I say at the graveside. And something embarrassing to admit about myself is that I, I always write the name of the person. Because I don't want to embarrass myself and say the wrong name or, or, or botch the name or do something terrible in that sense. But I always write down the name of the person that is being committed to the ground. And just last year, I replaced my two pages after nine years. And I write their names and then I scratch them out and circle a new one as the next one, the next one, the next one. And there was some 65 names. 
What does the gospel have to say? At that moment, at the tenderness of an open grave, a place where you and I have both stood, a place where one day someone will stand to witness for us. What we should believe and what we should call to mind and what we hope the people who come to witness that moment for us believe is that that is a place of resting that Jesus has sanctified and redeemed because it is a place that anticipates the glory of the resurrection. Their bodies rest because Jesus, in sanctifying, redeeming rest, has redeemed us from the power even of the grave, waiting the promised day. The hymn that we're going to sing then asks this question. Isaac Watts famously asks, Did ever such love and sorrow meet? That at the cross and at the grave, how could there be such love and such sorrow mingled together at the exact same time and it takes faith to peer into the mysteries and see the glories of a crucified, dead, buried, resting Messiah for you. Never has there been such love as this. Christ the Lord resting in the grave for you, loved one. For you. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.